today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Great news for the people of Grimsby. Here's what uh, Premier Doug Ford had to say in regard to their hospital. The conditions that these nurses and, and doctors and, and the frontline healthcare workers have to work in just walking down the hallways. And this is a 75-year-old hospital. In the middle of the summer, they, they have to pull out the window units to put air conditioning units in. Like, this is overdue. All right, West Lincoln Memorial Hospital getting a uh, rebuild. The premier, as you heard, uh, announcing a uh, uh, the plans and to get started on this. Let's bring in Joan Belair, West Lincoln Memorial Hospital, on the line with us now. Joan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you very much. So, your reaction to all of this? Fabulous. We're just delighted to hear that we finally have support. Uh, from a ministry that actually understands what our hospital's about. So it's just just great news. Were you surprised at this news today? Uh, we had an inkling. Uh, certainly um, our MPP, Sam Oosterhoff, has been very, very involved um, uh, with us as uh, physicians um, and also with the community um, and has been very open in regards to how hard he's been pushing. So we, we had a sense that this was going to be um, possibly a good news um, delivery. So for those who don't know, tell us the situation that the people in Grimsby find themselves in and and what has caused the anxiety for the last year or so. Um, Well, as you know, this is, as Doug Premier Ford had said, you know, it's a 75-year-old building. We've been fought uh, fought many times to try and get this um, hospital built on 2012. Uh, We were promised, um, and then uh, during a... um, during the um, the liberal time, it was also cancelled as a plan. So we've we've fought and also been very disappointed. Um, our hospital is a hub of our community. Um, all of our physicians, ninety eight percent of the physicians, work within our hospital. So from clinic to hospital to home care, we provide um, comprehensive care. That has been what we are about for decades, um, and and the community. It's their passion in recognizing how valuable our health care is. Um, and, um, of course, you know, a 75-year-old building uh, does need to be updated, and, and standards um, um, have changed, as they have been in all older hospitals in Ontario, and there's no difference with ours, and we have to update our hospital. And um, uh, in October, at the end of October, Hamilton Health Science um, had delivered a message that um, um, in order to update the services they felt moving uh, on the OR and obstetrics for a prolonged period of time would be the only way of, of, of updating those standards, which uh, we didn't feel was necessary. And we were concerned moving those services would really delete um, and not allow us to provide the services. And it would cause family doctors and family doctor anesthetists and, and obstetricians and midwives to move elsewhere when they couldn't provide services here. So uh, within two days of that announcement, um, over a thousand people in our community uh, met with uh, um, the physicians um, and the mayors and everyone who wanted to move this forward to get a louder voice. Um, Within 60 hours, Sam Oosterhoff presented 18,000 signed petition to Queen's Park wow. to show how much uh, we support this, this, uh, this hospital. And, you know, um, well, Premier Doug Ford and uh, Minister of Health um, 
Christine Elliott heard. They heard the people's voice and heard it loud and clear and, and felt compelled to actually present themselves here. It's the first time we've ever had a premier and a minister of health actually come to see our hospital and to truly understand that this is a hospital of the people. And um, they recognize the importance of making sure that they support this, to support the community, support the jobs, and it actually supports Ontario because we are a critical healthcare facility that trains rural family doctors and have supplied family doctors in 15 other communities in Northern Ontario from what we've taught about what rural medicine's about. So Premier Ford gets it. What, uh, so what happens now as you move forward with this? What happens now? Well, um, in order for um, the government to know um, how much um, they need to support the build, we need to move forward with a planning. So we have a planning grant of 500000 um, And uh, according to Premier Doug Ford, he doesn't want that delayed too long. So the push is to, happen that, to, ha- to have that happen as soon as possible. Um, and on top of that, there are also... Um, um, giving us um, investing 8.5 million to support immediate infrastructure improvements while um, the planning for the work for the redevelopment. So things that were really essential uh, that we needed to to support uh, while we're waiting for the hospital to be built will be um, will be fixed at this time. Um, and it's you know um, just making sure that the infrastructure is still there as we continue to move forward in building a brand new hospital. And according to Premier Doug Ford, he said, as soon as possible. So that's all good news. So what about the transition from, and and I'm looking down the road here, what about the transition from one to another? How how difficult is that process? Well, um, we're lucky in that the the, um, hospital is on a large piece of property. Mm -hmm. So we're able to build behind the hospital while we have our hospital running. Mm -hmm. So that has been a conversation with Hamilton Health Science for a while, with understanding that... It's not that we have to tear this down and then build. It's right. really building behind. So you can continue to function and that shouldn't, exactly. the construction should not interfere with the, the day-to-day operations then too Correct. much. Correct. So what does this do for Grimsby? Uh, I'm sure everybody's ecstatic there today, but what does that say as far as the town itself? Well, um, we have definitely, through this journey, have become certainly um, very united um, and it's very encouraging to know that we have the ministry's ear in understanding what is important for small town Ontario hospitals. Um, and, and this has been a great bolster. And we need to continue to to continue to support and and um, make sure that um, our hospital starts get starts getting built and starts shovels in the ground as soon as possible. Uh, Joan Belair is with us, West Lincoln Memorial Hospital. You've said a couple of times the phrase uh, rural doctors and small town hospitals. What's different about this place or what will be different than some of the other larger places? Well, um, as a physician, I work in a clinic in Smithville, but I also work in the eMERGE department at the hospital. I also do obstetrics and I also uh, provide palliative care um, coverage for our palliative care teams. 98% of the physicians in our community work in the hospital and do very similar work. Um, Our anesthetists are family doctor anesthetists. Our specialists support our family doctors, and our family doctors are the responsible physicians for all of our patients in the hospital. 
I may be in a clinic, and if I feel that my patient is quite unwell, I'll send them down to the eMERGE. I'll order tests. I'll deal with those tests. If they need to be admitted, I'll admit them. If they don't need to be admitted, I've organized things, and then I might do a house call in, the, in their home the next day if they're too unwell. So we provide cradle-to-grave care, and all of the family doctors in our community do that. It's all like but one do house calls. It's, I was just about to say, it, it's like everyone's on call, all hands on deck when yes, needed. Absolutely. We all, we all provide coverage, you know, getting up in the middle of the night to do house calls, to provide palliative care, end-of-life care, uh, to deliver babies, to, hmm. to attend urgent sur- uh, surgeries. We all do that. We all support this community. Are, the, are hospitals like this... Uh, administered differently than an average hospital? Is there something we can learn from this? Because it sounds like an ideal environment for that type of hospital. It is. It is an ideal environment. And and for sure, um, having the support of the community um, and of the ministry um, is important. And and we have that um, because without the ministry understanding that it's this kind of medicine that prevents hallway medicine, which is what Premier Doug Ford recognizes, then it really makes it very difficult to sustain. And, and thankfully, you know, the ministry, Premier Doug Ford and um, Minister Elliott understands that. And with that kind of support, we can continue to provide this comprehensive care and ensure that our patients are not seen in hallways. So what are the hurdles, the challenges moving forward? Uh, well, the hurdles and challenges moving forward is really just working through with Hamilton Health Science, uh, which is what we're doing, um, in working on moving the planning part as soon as possible. And then once that gets done, and hopefully we can do that as soon as possible, um, we can move forward and start building. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, in this area how hospitals will specialize in certain things and how you all work as a, as a team, as a cohesive unit. Uh, how does Grimsby fit into that? Well, we specialize in community-based care. We teach medical students, we teach residents what community-based care is. Mm. Residents from tertiary care centers, like even the surgeons and internal medicine uh, residents that come down, understand what actually family doctors can do within a community and understand what what kind of community medicine means in that the silos between hospital and community is eliminated. We, We work within hospital and in the community. And that unique type of medicine is valuable for even specialists to understand, to understand the value of what family doctors do and and how important they are in our patients' lives. More opportunity, I'm guessing this will allow more opportunity for the healthcare uh, business to grow in that community. Absolutely. Yep. Because you've got a state of the, you're getting a state-of-the-art facility now. We are. And we've really, to be honest, because we teach such um, such interesting type of medicine for a lot of rural medicine uh, residents that they stay in this community. So we've really not had any difficulty attracting physicians. Um, we've had several, uh, actually half of my clinic of eight, eight doctors um, are, are learners from here. Um, mm. So, you know, we it continues to attract physicians to put up their shingles to provide support for the community. It'll be interesting to see how Grimsby expands as a result of this hospital coming in. Because yeah, I mean, well, you know, even from develop from a development perspective, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it's now it's now an even better place to live. Absolutely. Yeah. So, when are you expecting to move in? Any any dream uh, date or anything like that? Anything on the horizon? 
Well, my dream would be at the end of Premier Doug's before his term is done, which would be four years, but we have to go through the process of planning and then get that done as soon as possible. And from there, um, get our build. And, um, you know, Premier Ford understands that. And he did state he's going to try to get this done ASAP. And I'm guessing that everybody in Grimsby is happy with this news. What's the mood in the town today? Oh, we're, we're elated. A lot of hard work has moved forward to get to this place, and, and we're elated. When did, this process, heard it. when did this process start for you guys? Well, we, we've never really stopped building, uh, asking for a, a new build for this hospital, um, even since um, the Liberal government had changed their minds in 2012, and we've been fighting ever since. But when, when there was a threat that our services were going to be moved out of this hospital, which would, would essentially close our hospital down um, on October 26th, uh, it really has ramped up. The, the pressure for sure and, and the, the cry for support from, from a new government. Plus, when you think of the development that's gone on in that area and, and just generally between Hamilton and Niagara, I mean, you'd think this is inevitable. I mean, sooner or yeah. later, it's not like you're going to need it any less 10 years down the road Correct. from now. You're right. Well, you know, there is lots of new development, but to be honest, I work in the Emerge and, and we see people from Fort Erie, from Niagara on the Lake, Niagara Falls that make the choice to travel all the way down the QE to get the care in our hospital because they do understand it is a unique type of care that they get. Um, Obstetrics-wise, you know, our midwives deliver women from all over Niagara to come to our hospital because of the care we give. So, yes, we're getting lots of new development, but we're also supporting a fair amount of people even outside of our catchment area. Big day for Grimsby, West Lincoln Memorial Hospital getting a rebuild. Dr. Joan Belair has been with us, West Lincoln Memorial Hospital, explaining what it means to the community and uh, what a great day it is for that area. Joan, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations. Good work. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The strike may be over due to legislation, but still obviously going to be some slowdowns at Canada Post and the employees obviously not happy about being legislated back to work. But Labour Minister uh, Patty Haidu says she's confident Canada Post and members of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers will work professionally together, dig through the backlog of packages that uh, have resulted from these rotating strikes and move on. In fact, that's one of the principles that's in the legislation is to uh, uh, move forward with, a, with a, a, an intent to ensure uh, positive labor relations in the corporation. All right. So at the end of the day, where the heck does that leave your packages? Uh, let's bring in Alan Freeman, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and on the line with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, that's fine. So where do we go from here? Where, uh, obviously now uh, they've been legislated back to work. That being said, Canada Post, uh, not happy about it, says that there will be a campaign of mobilizations, demonstrations, and nonviolent civil disobedience. You're saying the union's not happy about it? Right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, so as we move forward, wh- what are we going to see here towards Christmas? Well, I, you know, it's really hard to say. Now, to what extent... Is the union going to really follow through with these disruptions, or are they going to decide, well, members are going to decide, you know what, there's a lot of possible overtime. We better, we're going to get that, that backlog of parcels cleared and maybe sort of earn back some of the, 
some of the pay we lost while the row trading strikes were on. I don't really know. I'm not really, I, I, I'm not <laughs> uh, at the postal distribution centers. I don't know. I would guess that Canada Post Management uh, is going to try its utmost to get those parcels cleared because this is the lifeblood of the company now, right? Uh, you'll forget, you know, I don't think Canada Post or even Canadians out there really care whether their Christmas cards come late, but mm. my God, if their Amazon packages uh, and Christmas car, uh, uh, you know, packages come late, that will be uh, a big issue. So it's it's quite interesting. You see, um, Canada Post at one point was an essential service. Mm. So in other words, individuals, you know, the elderly weren't getting their old age pensions, uh, old age pensions checks. The uh, the unemployed weren't getting their checks from the government. This was a real essential service. No longer, but it's essential for. Canada's online retailers, right? And that's the big, um, those were the people who were pushing the government to have back-to-work legislation. I mean, so in other words, it's it's become, it's an economic necessity, not so much an essential service uh, anymore. But uh, that being said, I don't really know. I would guess that Canada Post, and I have a feeling we will get the, um, the parcel backlog will be cleared up. I'm not sure the union, does the union really want to undermine the company to that extent? Because, you know, the, the real, one of the major challenges facing Canada Post, and they've got several, right, um, is how do they compete against the FedExes and the UPSs? I know they're, in some cases their, their prices are lower, but if they're not reliable, then they're going to lose business, and they'll lose business for a long time. We've talked many times uh, in regard to Canada Post on this show, and, and it seems in a sense right now it is caught between two places. It's caught between the past and the present. Exactly. And, and, uh, and isn't, it wants to go back and, and unfortunately doesn't want to move forward. If Canada Post was to modernize, which would obviously mean, I'm sure, less employees, less door-to-door delivery, it, it seems odd that, uh, I'll finish my question here, if they were to do that, would they be in better shape? Would their problems be solved if they just finally realized we're not a letter a company that delivers letters to everybody's door now and the odd parcel now we're the company that delivers parcels to people's uh, homes and the odd letter if we were to do that would we still be having these issues well i think that what's interesting is that in 10 years time or 10 or 15 years time canada post will not be the same company right I think what you call, you know, transaction mail, first class mail, that's a dying business. Their volumes are down 40% in the last 10 years. You can't keep on shrinking every year. You know, it's sort of like newspapers or travel agents. They will go, the, it will go eventually the way of the dodo bird, right? Um, but the parcels business, that looks like it's here to stay and it's growing. You know, maybe at one point they'll reach, you know, they'll, they, you won't still get 20% increases year by year, but it's going to be a real solid business for a long time. But you, first of all, it's going to be, um, it'll probably be a smaller business, right? You won't need as many employees. And second of all, it's a competitive business. First class mail is a monopoly. The government has deemed it so for years. Parcels is as competitive as it gets. And the question that I think we have to ask ourselves as Canadians, like as a public policy basis, is the government has decided over many years, different governments, conservative, liberal, 
to get out of most commercial businesses. So, you know, government doesn't own railways, doesn't own Air Canada anymore, right? It doesn't own Petro Canada because they figure, you know, government should only be involved in businesses which are, have a very special, um, you know, um, role in right. society, you know, CBC or whatever. But so if it's just a parcel business, why does the government have to own it, right? It, it creates a whole different set of circumstances. Now, one of the things about, and, and the real question is, how do we get there, right? Because it still it has a lot of employees across the country. The other thing is, you know, you're in Hamilton, I'm in Ottawa. Canada Post is really important in rural parts of the country, mm-hmm. right? Where you don't get the same sort of um, equivalent service from the private sector. So, you know, and, and that's where a lot of, and post offices are still a you know, uh, very much a center of, of community life in small in small towns. So there's all that stuff that mix that's mixed up together. So how Canada Post manages that, you know, it's really hard to manage transition. It's really tough to manage do- downsizing. You know, I was in the newspaper business. Look mm-hmm. at the way, you know, newspapers are a shadow of themselves and may not survive. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And, you know, the union... You know, um, uh, you know, and, and there's this whole thing about you know uh, collective bargaining. Um, the problem is, is that when you have sort of a quasi-essential service, you know, like like the railways or a port, you can talk all you want about free collective bargaining, but no government is going to allow a strike to go on indefinitely, right? Because it just hurts the economy too much. So. And, you know, and the thing is, is that both sides, in some ways, you know, if you're the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, I've said this, and I'm, I know some, uh, some union people won't like this, but if you're the leadership of the CUPW, right, and you've got a choice between going to your members and saying to them, you know what, you're not going to get what, you were, what we sort of led you to believe you could get or what you've hoped to get, right? Maybe you should uh, vote for a second, you know, a, a, you know, second right? Or else you have the option of the government going to force you back to work, right? So maybe it's not so, you know, for leadership, you know, you can always tell if, 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 if the membership is ticked off about the, 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 the sort of conditions, they'll say, we didn't have anything to do with it. We were forced back to work. Mm. It, it just seems odd that, uh, you know, during the last election campaign, uh, the NDP uh, jumped on board and said, we're going to, you know, beca- because the conservative government was was pushing forward with super mailboxes and trying to get, yeah. you know, weed out home mail delivery. Yeah. And the NDP made it an election issue, said, uh, we're going to stop that. We're going to bring it all back. And Trudeau at the time was in third place. He doubled down and said, yeah, we're going to do the same thing. Yeah. And then, of course, found himself elected. And now we have a system stuck between two points because yeah. those that that those that guaranteed to hang on to home mail delivery in some selected areas are also the same people legislating them back to work, which kind of seems odd. Yeah, well, no. I mean, the, the other thing is, I can guarantee you, people who have home-to-home home delivery, don't worry, nothing's going to happen until after the next election, right? It's sort of, it's too, you know, uh, it's radioactive for them, to for liberals to do something now. How can yeah. it still be radioactive when most people don't even get it? 
I know. I know, but, you know, in those areas, right? Because, like, over and above it being fair, because let's not, well, it's all the older homes that are grandfathered in. That's BS. Those people have long sold and gone on, and and those neighborhoods are just like everybody else's is, other than they're older. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's, it's, but, you know, it's, it's like, it's hard when you've all, people get something and then you try to take it away from them, right? Um, You know, if you, if you, if you have a bridge that's been around for years and suddenly you put a toll on it, people will hit the roof. Right? Not if nobody's going over the bridge, though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, but they're not going to do anything with it. The other thing is, is that I think we've gone beyond the fact that, you know, they could stop home delivery or make it two to, twice a week or whatever. It's still not going to save Canada Post. You know, it's not going to make right. the mail delivery system a really viable, profitable business. It will save money for a few years, but I think we're almost beyond that point. So what do uh, they have to do? Can they compete? Well, I, look, you have to give them credit that um, they have built a really big parcel business. Mm-hmm. And it's been growing 20% a year. So, you know, they do have, they must have large logistical capacity, right, to move you know, originally it was letters. They've managed to, I guess, convert a lot of these big processing plants, you know, in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, into doing parcels. So they can move this stuff, right? And, and I, you know, I've got stuff from Canada Post, which was sent out uh, from whoever the day before. Mm-hmm. Days, you know, yeah. uh, they're pretty e- efficient. So they've done that. Now, you see, what I don't really know is I think logistically they've been the, the, the mail business has been in some ways subsidizing the parcel business. You know, they're using the same yeah. facilities, the same um, letter carriers, etc. Now, to what extent as the, you know, can, can they continue to do that cross-subsidy as time goes on? You know, and the other thing that, that <laughs> the other problem that Canada Post has, a problem, it's, it's great for employees. You know, Canada Post still has a defined benefit pension plan, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm sure... Lots of people, your listeners, maybe once had, but their kids don't have, right? Mm-hmm. So I assure you, they're, you know, they, they, as a result, they have higher labor costs. So in a competitive world, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's rough, right? So it's, it's a, you understand why CUPW workers don't want to give up those benefits. Oh, yeah. It's hard mm-hmm. to get them. Mm-hmm. But in a competitive world, it's, um, I'm not sure it's going to remain. So... Canada Post in 10 years will be a different company. It's really, but the, the problem for, for the government is that the clients are their voters. So they're going to be a little bit leery to, uh, you know, to get them too angry, right? I mean, and, you know, postal services around the world are having the same problems. U.S. Postal Service, it's cheaper. You know, people might go there and say, gee, I'd love to, you know, it's great to use the post office in the U.S., but the U.S. Postal Service has massive, massive losses. In the U.K., they've sold it, right? But there's still, people are still complaining about closing of post offices and all sorts of things. So it's, you know, it's one of these big transitions we're going through because of the digital economy. As time goes by, will people just care less about this? Well, I don't think they... As generations pass, or is it too tied to the small business I don't know. Ask your... You know, did anybody worry about the disruptions in the letter mail, yeah. right, for the last 
you know, what, five weeks or mm-hmm. so? Mm-hmm. I think they might have been angry if their Amazon package didn't arrive or their cannabis came, you know, a week late. But if the bill didn't arrive. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, well, the bills... Yeah, you know, they're online lot, anyway. How yeah. many people are getting exactly. bills on, uh, yeah. by the mail? Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't anymore, right? Uh, the union leader says, let's be clear, it's not business as usual at the post office. What can they do? What's in their toolbox? Well, I guess they can, you know, they can, you know, whatever you can do in labor relations, I guess you can you can sort of work slow or you can be disruptive or refuse owner. I'm not sure they can refuse overtime, right? So they can, I guess they can, but I'm not sure, right, uh, to what extent, you know. And the other thing is, is that... Um, it, this, this, these rotating strikes, it's interesting. One of the things is, is that for union members, you don't lose as much pay, but you still lose some pay, right? So, you know, it's coming up to Christmas for them. They may have the offer of overtime. Um, do they really want to turn that down to, to continue um, uh, uh, disrupting service? Now, I would guess the CUPW, what they'll do is they'll go to court and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll say this is unconstitutional because it's taking away their collective bargaining rights. That's that's fine. They did that in 2011. Um, I don't know that, but that's for another, you know, that's for another day. You know, I think what, you know, what your listeners, what people are wondering, will I get regular postal service again? Mm. And you know, you did get postal service during the strike. It was just pretty. It just was slowed down. How does this affect their business long term? Are people going uh, finding alternatives and not coming back? Well, that's I don't really know. But you know, these are the big. You know, these are the decisions that lots of businesses are taking. I am sure, right? Um, you know, the uh, now it is a big, big decision. I would guess for an Amazon or an eBay or somebody like that to to move away from. Uh, 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 you know, change suppliers because do they get the same coverage that you get from Canada Post? You know, Canada Post probably can, you know, uh, guarantee delivery to almost every address in the country. I'm not sure a lot of these alternative suppliers can. Um, So they have that decision to make. But, you know, reliability is really important. You know, if you're, (laughs) if people, you know, are, are, you know, choose three-day shipping, one-day shipping, etc., and your supplier can't give it to you, um, and that's why I think the government ended up moving is because they were being told probably by their management, but also by management of Canada Post, but also by, you know, by the retail people and the online people, you know what, we're going to, we, if this goes on much longer, we will change. We will move to somebody else. So is this over? I mean, as this progresses well, and, and T's get crossed and I's get dotted, I mean, is the public moved on from this? Have customers moved on? I well, guess I, mean, I, I, I guess, guess as they get this, deliveries, this they'll know. Dispute, it's over, right? I mean, I don't know. It may go on in court. There may yeah. be some uh, grumbling uh, at, at distribution centers for a while. But this is now are the long-term problems of the post office solved? Not in any, not in any way, shape, or form. It's An interesting solved. question from a listener. I'll throw this in real quick, uh, Alan. Uh, where would they be without the junk mail business? Well, they don't call it that, but yeah, the I customer mean, yeah, might. that. I, I'm not, you know, and what's interesting, if you look at even the volumes of so-called junk mail, whatever they call it, you know, are going down because, you know, people are um, consuming in a different way. You know, look at all the, look at the the, the mail you don't want, you know, the advertising you get through uh, Google and Facebook that you really don't want. So even the junk mail 
business is not as great as it was, right? And if the thing is, is that if people aren't reading their regular mail, then maybe people are just not going to read that stuff that comes to the door as well. Alan Freeman has been with us, Graduate School of Public Affairs and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Alan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is an interesting topic, and I'm not sure if I'm qualified to speak on it because I'm not a religious person. Um, That being said, um, I'm concerned for other reasons. And here's, uh, you you heard uh, this lady, by the way, on with Bill Kelly earlier on today. Uh, her name is Gina Clark, and we'll play a portion of that interview as well. But this is out of the Toronto Star. The headline is Mom Battle School Board saying yoga is against her religion. Uh, Gina Clark was furious when her eight-year-old daughter came home from school in tears after doing a wellness day activity uh, in her grade three class. Uh, the Vaughn mother says, my daughter was very upset. She knew she did something she wasn't supposed to do. Uh, accommodation was granted, religious accommodation for her to be, uh, not participate in this class. Uh, however, something happened and uh, this girl wasn't uh, removed from the class. Uh, the Clark family is Roman Catholic and doesn't do yoga because it is, they feel, rooted in Hinduism. Whether or not Catholics should do yoga has been debated uh, time and time again. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR, and with us now. Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Much, uh, much appreciated. Oh, as always, Scott. I'm not, am I qualified to speak on this because I'm agnostic? Well, I think you can have an opinion on it. I mean, just because your religious beliefs lean towards being agnostic doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion. Here is a clip. This is from the Bill Kelly show earlier on, uh, and he had the mother on. We're going to play you two. Uh, The last one in respect to uh, the student feeling safe. Here's the first one. Um, Our level of satisfaction is very low. We felt like um, this could have been resolved in the school very easily. To this day, I don't really know how this got missed. Nobody has really accounted for this, and many, many people were involved as I went up the chain, either because of what I felt they did or did not do. Um, But there's been very little or if if no accountability. All right, and here is the clip that I'm concerned about. She felt uncomfortable with it, obviously. She didn't actually know what was going on until the end, unfortunately. So she felt very, very um, upset. Uh, she she uh, didn't feel safe after this happened. That's the part I uh, have trouble with, is that she didn't feel safe. Uh, I, I, I want to state that uh, uh, if there's a re- religious accommodation being granted here, she should have been granted it, and she should not have been in that class if it had been arranged earlier that that was not supposed to happen. However, what concerns me is when we have a student, this little girl in a class, and she's in what is supposed to be supposed to be a safe environment with her teacher, with her peers, her friends and such that she's in class with. Um, my concern is, is that she didn't feel safe there. And and I guess my reaction is, what religion are you teaching where a student doesn't feel safe? within their own class because of something on the curriculum. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, first and I of mean, all, you know, yeah. again, coming from my religious, non-religious beliefs, I have a hard time processing that. I, I think it's the use of the word safe, and I think that the use of the word safe has sort of a, have, has a very expanded boundaries. I doubt that that little girl came home and said, "I didn't feel safe." She may have felt that she was doing something wrong. She may have felt that she was going against the wishes of her parents. In which case, who knows why she didn't feel safe? Because she didn't want to have to go home and tell her parents that happened. Um, the first thing I'd like to address is that the mother has every right to wonder why the accommodation wasn't granted, especially when it was specifically requested. Agreed. I mean, listen, when, growing up, I mean, there were kids who wanted to say the Lord's Prayer and kids who didn't. Mm-hmm. Kids who wanted to say it, said it, and yet kids, you know, bowed their heads respectfully but didn't say anything. So, you know, at the time, did I think that I was being, um, you know, held against my will to say the prayer? No. But now that I have a different perspective as to why the school was imposing a religious activity on me that my religion didn't accommodate for, I'd certainly question it now. Um, So the mother has every right to wonder why the accommodation wasn't granted and requested. Her use of the word safe, though, I think has an expanded boundary, and I think that it is probably not the right use of word here. I don't think that the activity of yoga made anybody feel or the child feel unsafe. Uh, my speculation is that the child felt that she was doing something that was unfamiliar to her and made her upset. Now, whether, you know, when we talk about feeling safe, it's in the sense of impending danger. And it depends on the definition, Scott, that we give the word safe. And I don't know what the school board considers safe and unsafe as a true definition. I know what I think safe is. Safe is is that I feel safe and secure and that I don't feel that I am in imminent danger of uh, having any harm incurred upon me. So if you use that definition, could you honestly think that the peaceful practice, practice of mindfulness or of yoga uh, would incur danger on somebody? My guess is no. And I I remember being in the 70s when we said the Lord's Prayer in school, and they got rid of that because they didn't want, again, they didn't want to be pushing religion on on people who who, who didn't want that. Um, And in this situation, we have a gray area with, you know, and, and some may say this is not the issue, but a gray area whether yoga is this or yoga is that. Again, at the end of the day, it always comes back to your belief, which is why in Canada we don't have laws rooted in religion. We have them rooted in law from our society simply because it can be interpreted, a religious passage, anything, can be interpreted so many different ways. So how do you balance that here? Well, I I think it depends on, you know, your definition of yoga. And this family's particular family's definition of yoga is rooted in the belief that it is Hinduism and that it goes against Roman Catholicism. I don't profess to know any more than that, that very sort of like top line um, take on it. And they didn't want to do it because it went against their religious practices. Fine. I'm not one to comment on that. I mean, I, I go to yoga because I've got tight muscles and I need to stretch. Yeah. And I like the fact that I can breathe and be quiet for an hour and a quarter, if you can believe that, Scott. But, um, you know, and they're teaching mindfulness to kids in school as ways to self-calm, as ways to get rid of anxiety, Mm. as a coping mechanism that if you're in the middle of a test and you don't get a question, do you, you know, start to sweat and shake and freak out and cry? 
or do you take a few deep breaths and collect yourself and move on to the next question that maybe you do know? My guess is is that is what why they're teaching mindfulness. I have seen different yoga programs that are put into schools for those very reasons. Number one, to quell anxiety, and number two, to give kids who are, have traditionally bad behavior, so to speak, mm. different ways of uh, creating an outlet for that energy in a way that is more constructive than destructive. So, you know, that's why schools are putting mindfulness in it. And I would be more, I would have been more than happy to have my daughter learn in grade three or four some of these yeah. self-soothing techniques. Now, listen, the, the woman has every right to wonder why the accommodation wasn't requested, mm-hmm. and she made pains to request it. She filled out the form, she sent it in, and still... The kid did it. Now, whether or not she told her child, if in case they do do yoga, remember to go to the teacher and say, I'm excused from this activity. That's what I would have done with my kid, knowing that if I knew what was going on in the school. And I probably would have if I was so concerned to make sure that she was excused in the first place. At what point? Sorry, go ahead. So so if you're not going to arm your kids with the tools and just expect paperwork in a school administration, which you know often falls through the cracks, you're not going to arm your kid with the sense of with words or with the actions to ensure that her rights are respected. That's also on the mother. So, and here's a devil's advocate question. At what point, no pun intended, at what point does religious accommodation become detrimental? Or is that an individual thing? Is that an individual decision? That's an individual decision, Scott. You know, I mean, it only becomes detrimental if you're spewing hate and you're spewing and you're spreading it, other, and you're spreading it. Right. You're you're doing it against other religions just because you don't happen to like them. That's when original religious accommodation um, becomes uh, becomes an issue. You know, you and I grew up in a time when you know we talked. We just talked about this, where the Lord's Prayer seemed completely normal. Yeah. Given that we lived in a predominantly, you know. Uh, Protestant society. Well, the city grew, the city changed, and there's no longer a predominant religion that should rule all. And I am all for that, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. If my kid came home and says you had to say the Lord's Prayer, I'd phone the school. Yeah. But, you know, be that as it may, if you have very, very strong, strongly held and strong convictions in Catholicism, then, you know, if you don't like the way the public school system is treating your kids, you do have recourse you can send them to the the Catholic board, which is publicly funded with our taxpayer dollars. Is religious accommodation the same as saying the Lord's Prayer? Yes. I, because I many like, will say, many will say, well, why do we have to, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, why do we have to accommodate the kid in the yoga class when, you know, we're not accommodating everybody else's religion by doing the Lord's Prayer anymore? Well, I shouldn't say everybody else's, others' religions. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, if you have a religiously held belief that also has merit and it just wasn't, you know, pulled out of a, a hat or that you made up, you know, the the Catholic belief that they shouldn't be doing yoga is some is a belief that some hold. And if that's well known and, and has been discussed before and, and people do believe in it, of course you have to accommodate it. It's it, it, For some people, it's the same as, I don't want to say the Lord's Prayer, even though to this day I can recite it word for word. But, uh, you know. It, Me it, too. It, 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 yeah, I know. <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven. Anyway, exactly. I'll, I'll, I digress. But, I, you know, at the same time, it's not it's the school's place 
to teach about the diversity of religion, not to impose religion. And this mother felt that her religion was being imposed upon. Right. Uh, it seems in our day, not sound like an old fart, and just by saying that, I do. Uh, it was about getting religion, all of this, out of schools. It was, uh, you know, we weren't we weren't going that direction anymore. And now it seems that we're accommodating. It seems that nobody cared about religion here uh, back in the 70s and 80s, but now other religions are flourishing. Hey, wait a minute. What about ours? What, 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 what's going on here? Uh, again, how do we go from um, uh, removing religion from institutions and yet allowing for religious accommodation? Is that not the same? Mm, I don't know, Scott. That, that, that's kind of a, a really difficult question. I think that you know, if religion is part of the curriculum and you're learning about different religions, you know, kids learn about Ramadan, they learn about Eid, they, re- they learn about Hanukkah, they learn, they learn about, you know, December is, is filled with the teachings of different religions yeah. because of all the, all the holidays that pop up. And I think that's great. Yeah, me too. We should know what all of those things are. Mm-hmm. The world is not made of the microcosm of who, what street I happen to live on. The world is a big place, and the greater understanding that we create among our young children, the better we're all for it. And so that when people do have a religious accommodation, oh, I can't eat meat, oh, I would rather dress this way, oh, I can't participate in that um, activity, oh, I would rather not say this prayer, we have greater understanding rather than saying, come on, yeah, that's ridiculous, just do as everybody else does. Where is this going? How do we make this the best for the child? Well, first of all, I think there has to be an apology. If there hasn't been one given already to the mother or to the child, then there should have been one. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we are very sorry. We, you gave us this accommodation in time. We did not enact it. It, it fell through the cracks. And we apologize profusely. And we are very sorry for any, um, you know, disrespect or any, um, you know, fear that the child may have felt in participating in the activity. I mean, she she needs to have an apology. Um, And I think that because she hasn't been given an appropriate answer, an appropriate apology, that's why the mother is still on the Bill Kelly show, you know, airing airing her grievances, because the school board refuses to acknowledge, perhaps, that they made a mistake. And they did make a mistake. Mm Mm-hmm. But the use of the word safe, my daughter didn't feel safe, then I think the first thing that this mother needs to teach her daughter is that if you don't feel safe, don't wait till 50 minutes at the end of the period if you don't feel safe. What about the fact... safe in this situation, what about when there's real danger? That's what my point was. If you're going to wait 50 minutes to to speak up because she doesn't feel safe in the presence of real danger... See, I'm... See, you're, you're, you're questioning, you're questioning whether, you know, the child acted and said, you know, I don't feel safe. I know this is not right for me, so I'm going to get out. I don't think the child used the word safe. I think the mother used the word safe. But, and again, what I, what I, what I have, what I have a problem with is somehow the parents or the mothers making the daughter feel so distraught in a yoga class, whether you believe in it or not. And you, even if you think it's not right, it's only a yoga class. Yeah, but Scott, it you know people treat and teach, and teach their kids different yeah. things in different ways. Right. Listen, when my daughter was going through school, you know, you ran into, you know, all different types of parents, mm. 
And when I sat on the school at my daughter's nursery school board at the time, people would say what it was like. And I would say, well, there's this school board for nursery kids and there's Enron. So, you know, it's very, very highly charged and very, very political where there is a heightened sense of what is really right and what is wrong and when people are hard done by. And it is the culture. It's a parallel universe and it is the culture. So, you know, I, I think that, like I say, there are expanded definitions of what things mean and apply to in different situations. And if the word safe is used, if the child doesn't feel safe, to me, that's just clickbait. That's just a great way to get into the media. Yeah. Honestly, it is. It's yeah. the perfect word to use. If I phoned up your producer and said, I have a story, my daughter was made to do this, and she didn't feel safe, but, but she didn't feel safe. But it, to me, it's everybody's reacting to um, uh, making her feel safe or what happened yeah, it, to it, cause it, her to it, feel it, safe as opposed it, to why she's not feeling safe in a classroom with her peers. But yeah, I understand but it's belief. That's just a distraction of the narrative. Yeah. That's just a distraction of the narrative to get the mother's point across. Right. All right, let's talk. The had apologized, we we would not be talking about this. All right, we've only got about a a couple of minutes left here, but I want to touch on General Motors and, of course, what's happened in Oshawa, but not only that, across uh, North America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Donald Trump uh, says he's not happy with this, blah, 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 blah. Who's bigger, Donald Trump or General Motors? How is this going to play out? Um, If I'm Donald Trump, I think I'm bigger than General Motors. If you read the Washington Post interview yeah. uh, today, yeah. you know that everything that goes on in his brain is is far more intelligent and distills information far better than, than any expert could tell him. So I'm sure that Donald Trump thinks that he is better than General Motors. At the end of the day, the writing has been on the wall. In a lot of these plants, specifically the one in Oshawa, 10 years ago there were 40,000 workers. Ten years later, there's 2,500. Yeah. Now, that's just simple math. And if you don't get the fact that whatever you are producing, people are not buying, there's trouble in River City. And all this posturing by the, the union heads that every, you know, Trudeau needs to get together with Trump and we need all to band against General Motors – you know, that just makes for great narratives for your membership to show that maybe you're sticking up for them. But at the end of the day, people are not buying the product. And if they're not buying what you're making, you can't make it. Can Donald Trump humiliate them into putting a plant back in Ohio? I mean, how do they balance this? I mean, stock prices can fluctuate if the guy opens his mouth or tweets in the wrong direction. At what point does this, is this, what what kind of, what's the fine line that uh, GM's, you know, straddling here? Well, you know, right now, every political leader is saying that there's there's something should be done. Andrew Scheer was on a press tour yesterday saying something needs to be done. Andrew Scheer knows as well as anybody that there's not much to be done at this point. Now, what should be done is that there needs to be an industrial strategy that, you know, has to be enacted by getting the best and the brightest in one room and saying, what do we need to do to help the workers of this province to encourage manufacturing and to make sure that these people with outdated skills have a renewable skill set? That's what they should be doing, because that's what's going to have to happen. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.